Hello there everybody and welcome to the Talking City Podcast brought to you by the Manchester Evening News. My name is Dan Murphy and joining me today on this very blue day for all City supporters is Mr Joe Bray. Joe, how's it going? Well they do say it's Blue Monday don't they on, on this day so I think City fans will be feeling that especially after uh, the weekend's events. I'm not too bad though, are you all right? Yeah, I'm all good, mate, all good. Good as ever. And excited to talk about such an enticing game because also with us today, the man who was there um, seeing the, the the controversial action unfold with Mr Tyrone Marshall. Ty, how's it going? Yeah, good. Thank you, Dan. Good. Looking forward to talking about the uh, the first 78 minutes at least. Right, well, let's kind of just jump straight in, and I think we all know where we're going to start. The play, you know, the controversial point, the uh, the sticking point, the bit that all City fans will be no doubtly riled up about. Um, still on Monday, uh, on Monday afternoon, uh, forty eight hours after the game kind of concluded, and you know, I, I don't, none of us here are City supporters. I, I'm certainly not, but even still, watching that equalising goal in motion as it happened I was baffled I was a little bit sickened and just absolutely dismayed at how the goal um, was allowed to stand and I think we're kind of all in agreement it was uh, the most bizarre decision I've ever seen Joe and the fact that some people were kind of arguing that it should have stood afterwards was honestly sending me insane I just couldn't believe it now I couldn't stand United fans loving it I can understand why you'd want that, you know, I don't get why they're not just going, yeah, it shouldn't have stood, ha ha ha, we've won and we've gotten away with one, it makes it even sweeter, I'd certainly be kind of lording it over, the incessant defending of the goal since um, has been quite peculiar, I find, um, let's kind of talk about it, because I'm, well, I'm, I'm sure no City fan has uh, not seen it, but in case not, the ball is played through from Casemiro to Marcus Rashford. He is offside. He lets the ball run under him. He runs onto the ball. He's about to shoot the ball. Edison is def- uh, preparing for that shot. Manuel Akanji and Kyle Walker are coming over to try and prevent that shot. He doesn't shoot. Bruno-, Bruno Fernandes does. He scores. And the goal is given, Joe. I am still absolutely perplexed as to how we're standing here and United equalised off that goal. Well, I think what City fans will be most annoyed at is that the flag went up initially. Like It was initially given offside, which is surely the right decision. And then the referee goes over, they decide that Rashford hasn't touched the ball and for some reason they think he's not interfering with play. And that that means that the goal was given. And I was hearing today that apparently VAR couldn't intervene because it wasn't a black and white decision for the offside. Yeah, exactly. I can I can see your face there because it was a subjective offside rather than is he on or off because Bruno Fernandes was clearly onside that's why VAR couldn't intervene which I would point to as another in the long list of problems with how VAR is implemented but no how how the officials can't have, have decided that Rashford isn't interfering in play is it's beyond me I think Manuel Akanji said after the game it was quite refreshing to hear him come out and say it was a joke because you you get players sort of bite the tongue a bit but he said he stopped because he was playing Rashford offside. He's then two or three yards behind him. And instead of following the ball diagonally to the centre of the box where Fernandez eventually touches it, he ends up running directly straight to the byline to try and follow Rashford's run. He's he's changing his run. He's changing how he's defending because of Rashford. And yeah, it's I, I'm, I can't really offer any new, <laughs> new, new analysis or insight because... My, the only thing I can say is how is it not offside? But I mean, I've got the rules up here, and it says you're so offside if you are making you're making an obvious action which clearly impacts on the ability of the opponent to play the ball. 
he's making an obvious action. He's run with it 30 yards, as Akanji says. Whether Akanji's going to get there or not is, is completely irrelevant. But yeah, no, I think I, th- I, th- I think it's uh, it, it, as Akanji said. I think it, it, it was a joke. Uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Tyrone here what was it like at the ground because I'm sure the United fans were absolutely delighted. But the United fans I know have all they've they've let the celebrations die down and then they've sort of come back and said yeah they'd be fuming if if that went against them. Yeah, I, I think that you know the, that was the general reaction. It's harder to tell at a ground. It, you know, it's easier in a way to see the TVs and there was so much happening at that stage of the game. You know, you, you've been in press boxes when the. the the whole narrative of the game has changed within four minutes right near the end and you've got your heads buried in laptops, barely taking in a replay, just typing furiously. And there was kind of so much going on, the City players surrounding the referee, that it was it was confusing in a way to know exactly what had happened and, and what the issue was. And it's only seeing more and more replays in the cold light of day that you kind of realise what is going on. Um, I mean, I, I was there doing it from a City angle on, on Saturday, obviously do United stuff as well. And... I did a United podcast earlier, our United podcast earlier, and everyone on that, you know, the United I'd rise on that agreed it was clearly offside. Um, and it, it was telling that when we were in the press room still at Old Trafford finishing off um, on Saturday afternoon, BT Sport was still on and that score programme was on and they had Peter Walton on again trying to explain why it was offside. And you had, I don't know, maybe four or five ex-pros who were all just baffled having played the game at how he wasn't interfering and... He quite clearly was, like you say, Akanji's, Akanji's defending is with the thought process that he's following Rashford. I don't know if you've seen the stills on social media today of Rashford taken out of that scenario, and you know he's he's probably within a slight tackle of clearing the ball when Fernandez is still three or four paces away. So he's clearly getting there first, even if you take Rashford out of it. And then you've got the fact that Rashford does faint to shoot, and that's that's affecting Edison's decision making. So. I, you know, I think everyone can accept that it, it was clearly offside, and the the VAR thing was interesting because that you know there was it wasn't clear at the game exactly who had overruled who and what had happened, and obviously it was a discussion between the referee and the linesman. Has he touched it? No. Was he interfering? Uh, we don't think so. But they would clearly have benefited, or you presume the referee would have benefited from watching that on the monitor and saying, right, yeah, he's he's pulled his leg to have a shot here. Uh, my judgment now is that that is interfering, and we're, we're we're allowing referees to make judgment calls on fouls and handballs and things like that at the monitor all the time. So I don't understand when this is ended in a goal why we're not allowing them to make a judgment call on this. And I know I know offside is done by the technology, but this was a, a different kind of offside call. And you know every decision a referee makes when looking at a monitor is subjective. So I don't understand why he's not allowed to look at the monitor for this and get a better indication of is Rashford interfering or not? Because to make that on a snap decision, when you only see it once live and he's 15 yards behind the play, is extremely difficult for an official. And they, you've got the technology there. Give them the benefit. Give the referee the benefit to go and look at it and make a decision after that. Mm-hmm. Well, I must say this has been extremely soothing for my psyche because Joe knows as I was messaging him um, in the aftermath of the game, I was listening to the pundits in the BT Sports studio and obviously they had a quite a United, United basis coming from kind of Rio Ferdinand and Paul Scholes' mouth, but how they could kind of sit there and say he hasn't dragged the defenders towards him or anything like that. that that's not what the, you know, I had so much more of a rant kind of planned out, but you two have um, so, so, so succinctly um, agreed with me that I don't have to argue about it, but I need to get this pent out frustration out anyway. The rule doesn't say if you drags a defender towards him or anything like that. He, he affected the play of everyone there. Edison, that picture you mentioned there, Ty, Edison is quite clearly 
facing right at Rashford. He's not looking at Fernandez. He's set. His body, his old body, is facing Rashford. And I'm glad you said that fainting to shoot thing because that is absolutely spot on. He pulls his leg back and he's about to shoot. It's basically the longest dummy of all time. How he just left the ball and he shepherded it. He shepherded it right to the edge of the box for Fernandez to hit it. And even more so, and I think the point that I've not actually seen mentioned anywhere, the pass from Casemiro was for Rashford. Like blatantly, maybe you can't, you know, maybe that would be his word against the rest of us and Casemiro would say, actually, I, I knew Fernandez would be there, it was to him. But it's blatantly to Rashford. He doesn't play the pass if Rashford isn't in an offside position. So literally everything from that, I think if Rashford doesn't move and the ball, right, but even the, the ball goes under him at the start of the move anyway, literally every part of it, I suppose if he just kind of stands still and doesn't move once and Fernandez gets onto the end of it, It'd be fine, I'd suppose, but that's not what happened. And dealing in that absolute, you know, absolutes is absolutely just peculiar. I mean, I, and I, it's just such a confusing decision, John. Like, you know, we've got all this technology now, and it, how? And as Ty says, how isn't it just looked at and polished off? Because it was obvious and you know as I said the people kind of trying to say you know you, you, Rashford and Fernandez after the game defending it as well I'm like oh just come on I'd, I'd respect them more if they just went ah we got away with one there didn't we lads yeah, but you know you, you might, they might not get away, on, away with one next time I suppose if they admit it I think you do have to give a little bit of credit to Rashford and Fernandez just for working out that situation and pushing the luck as far as they could could get it and I think Akanji said as well that Fernandez called Rashford at the last minute. I'm not even sure Rashford knows Fernandez is there. But to sort of work that out in such a heated moment is probably they deserve a little bit of credit, but also they Well Fernandez steams is. over straight away, doesn't he, to the linesman. His celebration is yeah. going to the linesman and staking the claim immediately. He, and he's good at that Fernandez. He's really good at he's always in the referees here trying to and it's it's minimal games at the end of the day. Sorry, please continue. Yeah, no, I I think that yeah, it, it was very clearly offside. And I, th- I think it's more to do with the way that the officials have dealt with the decision and being allowed to deal with the decision rather than anything that Fernandez and, and, and Rashford have done because they're there to win a derby and you're going to do things, you're going to do cynical things, you're going to pull a defender back if he's through on goal. It, you, you're there to win the Manchester derby and if you're losing with 10 minutes to go, you're going to do things like that. But um, no, I think it was on the Sky Sports ref watch where they said that because because it wasn't something where the VAR could freeze the frame and look at the lines to see is he offside or something to that effect that they couldn't look at, at the VAR. But it, it seems like the referees need help in these situations because we don't see something like that this so often. It's It, it looks clear to us because we've seen it a hundred times now, but in the sort of the heat of the derby, I would imagine the referees would have probably appreciated a look back and just said, right, OK, well, he's run with it for 30 yards. The defenders have, are looking at Rashford, not not Fernandez. Let's let's sort of make the right decision here. But if they've not been allowed to, I'd say that is a problem more with the rules and the implementation, implementation of VAR as much as sort of what probably was quite a difficult decision to make mm-hmm. within 30 seconds. Yeah, no doubt it was, it was a rare scenario. I can't recall quite off the top of my head ever seeing something like that recently especially when VAR's come in and we had kind of a similar situation um, on Super Sunday with Fulham Newcastle where Mitrovic kind of slipped um, he's, he double touched his penalty and it took a while for the referees to kind of seem like know what exactly was going on because just because it's such a, a rare scenario 
although at least they got the decision right this time and not in the 2004 League Cup final, but less about that, the better. Um, but in that scenario, Ty, you know, they've got referees in the year who I imagine have the encyclopedia rules in front of them if need be to consult. And it should have just been the easiest VAR decision ever. Just look at the replay once and you can clearly see how the offside player has a real effect on the passage of play and the... The simple fact of the matter is the goal would not have been scored if Rashford didn't run with the ball the way he did. It wouldn't have done. Um, and that clearly they got an advantage from a player being offside and it still just bends my mind how the goal was allowed to stand. Yeah, it is. Like you say, it is a confusing one. And the whole VAR thing is is even more confusing. Like I said, the, the, the officials would clearly benefit from a look. You've got to... When the referee goes to talk to the linesman, he's making a judgment on something at that stage that probably happened 45 seconds ago that they've seen once in real time with 76,000 people on you know on, on top of them basically and you've got to try and go back to that picture and to them making that snap judgment their influences did he touch the ball you know you can understand that they can't they can't replay that image in their mind to say well did he pull his leg back has he got in the way of the defender it's a lot to take in from something that you only see once and it was 45 seconds ago and you weren't you weren't watching it at the time thinking you were going to need to remember that that information and that picture in your head so you can understand why the referee has just gone to the linesman and said, did he touch it? The linesman said no, or he's asked who's offside. They've had a shout about, did he touch it? No, and they've just gone from that because for them, it's it's impossible to kind of reload that picture in your head and process it in, in how much influence he's actually had beyond just touching the ball. So we clearly have, have benefited. And Joe was right, you know, credit to Fernandes, really. It, it was great game awareness from him. Um, a great run from him as well, to be fair. I mean, you'd maybe ask a question of, of City's defending and, and who was tracking him because he was in acres of space, really, to, to run onto that pass. And, and City were cut open far too easily from an attack that started basically at United right-back. It was a pass, I think, from from right-back out to Casemiro with through ball. And then the attacking midfielders threw with no one near him. So, you know, defensively, it, was, it, it wasn't great. And that's probably kind of got lost in amongst all of this. But it, it, it also was a goal that quite clearly shouldn't have stood. Mm-hmm, absolutely, you know, and now we've got, or at least I have got that out of my system somewhat. You know, the goal and its controversial kind of circumstances shouldn't kind of be used, I don't think, to hide what was another disappointing afternoon for City before. And now, if the goal doesn't go in, uh, you know, 12 minutes to go at that stage, maybe City hold out. But United had come alive at that point. They were looking quite dangerous. And as you quite rightly say, the character attacked them from. I think, was it a City kind of set play, a throw-in or a corner or something like that? And they said, Wan-Bissaka plays it out, Casemiro, great through ball. And to be one up with 12 minutes to go and to be cut open so easily, it was kind of the story um, of the game. Because I thought the first half, I thought United were the better team by some distance. We were unlucky not to be ahead um, one or two by half-time. Um, after the break, or at least after 55 minutes, when uh, Guardiola changed things a little bit, City came into it, obviously got the goal, but they couldn't see it out. Then it's... It's you know it's the second defeat in a week. Not often that happens. I believe first time this season they've lost successive games. And the, the telling stat for me, Joe, is one shot on target in 180 minutes of football after the um, misfire against Southampton. And that that shot on target, of course, being Jack Grealish's goal. I mean, what's what's going on? Because we can talk about you know the the, the equaliser all we want, but City weren't good beforehand and probably deserved to lose anyway, or at least not win. Yeah, it, it was a much better performance than Southampton. I think Guardiola said that he was really happy with the overall performance, but then unless it is a performance on, on the scale of Southampton, he will say that anyway. He's 
I think he was generally pleased of, of how City sort of applied themselves because United are a good team now and, and they're in form and to, to play like that in a derby you, you've got to sort of have the levels of desire that they lacked in Southampton so in that regard they competed more than they did last time but yeah I, I do agree with you that something is, is still missing and I think two or three players now have said they, they basically lost their heads after that first goal they were still feeling a bit a sense of sort of injustice and the heads weren't right and, and the defending was sort of uncharacteristically bad for Rashford's goal. You know, it, it bounces off, I think, Ake a couple of times and uh, Garnacho's got plenty of space and I, I, I can't remember who was meant to be marking Rashford but they've they've let him free in the six-yard box with five minutes to go in a derby which you can't afford to do and, and after that, it's, it's City have sort of brought the defeat on themselves really. Yeah, like you say, if... If the first goal doesn't go in, maybe they hold on and, and United get a bit more frustrated. But it wasn't really a surprise to see them collapse in the, in the wake of that second goal, which I think will be the concern. And yeah, like you say, the, the, the creating of the chances, the fact that it's one shot in target in two games, that's we've not, not seen that from a, a City side in quite a while. And I, th- I think Match of the Day might have put a, a stat on saying the City's shots on targets, the lowest number of shots on targets this season. I think two or three of those occasions have come in the last five games, even against Chelsea and and perhaps Everton. I can't remember. I'll try and dig it out. But the, it's not just these last two games. I think it's a problem maybe since the World Cup that they're not creating as much as they used to and they're having to rely on maybe one or one goal to win a game really rather than the sort of three or four that they used to and that just takes one one defensive problem we saw against Everton Rodri loses the ball and they score with the one shot on target and City drop points happens again at United it's yeah something needs to change and mm. I, I think it might be mentality more than more than anything else but I would also say that the noises we're hearing is that they know exactly what needs to be done they just need to just need to improve and, and need to fix it well, you mentioned the the, the um, form since the World Cup there, and you're right to bring it up. I think they've only won half of the games they've played since um, club football resumed. But I do think it actually goes deeper. I was looking into it yesterday, and City have played dead on 28 games this season in all competitions. And in the first 14, uh, they had just one defeat, and they scored, I want to say, 44 goals off the top of my head. Um, in the 14 games since, um, three defeats have come, and they've only scored 25. So uh, there's been a clear, you know, before and after point in the halfway mark, and that 14th, the, the 14th match the halfway point was that defeat to Liverpool and we thought at first that they kind of bounced back from it quite well if you recall we said many times three victories on the bounce after that but they were nervy defeat um, victories they beat Brighton 3-1 but Brighton in that first half really kind of took the game to them and you know the Brighton that they're in the form they are in now may well have kind of got a win and it was only narrow wins against I want to say Fulham and Leicester um, Fulham good side no doubt and uh, City had 10 men but uh, the Leicester game Leicester are not in great strokes at all and then we had the defeat to Brentford which was obviously kind of the nadir of that form and City I've always said many times they haven't been the same since that first Manchester derby um, or at least that week they beat Wolves 3-0 the week before um, they beat Southampton 4-0 afterwards but we know how poor Southampton are that United game was the, the 6-3 was the last time United I'm sorry it was the last time City were truly scintillating I think it's fair to say they, they beat Chelsea 4-0 the other week but that was a much weakened Chelsea side and they beat Liverpool in that thrilling Carabao Cup game as well but I'd 
again, I think the defending in that match at times was quite suspect and could have gone the other way. United match, the the home game, I'd say it was the last time City were truly, truly mint and you know, 6-3 flattered United quite considerably. And that attack that day, as was with the Wolves game previously, was Grealish, Haaland and Foden. And it really looked like Guardiola had finally settled on the best front three. Foden on the right was on fire. I, you know, got a hat-trick that day. Haaland, of course, got a hat-trick as well. And De Bruyne was linking up really well with Foden on the right and was sending in those crosses from deep and apart from the assist on Saturday I don't think we've seen much of De Bruyne um, being quite as deadly um, in those areas since then and he hasn't played that front three since that that day that the, the Foden on the right Grealish on the left and Haaland up front and tight for the life of me I don't understand why he hasn't now maybe Mares coming back into form a little bit and obviously he can only play on the right that's changed things a little bit and he's been uh, Foden might have been out of sorts after the World Cup but it happened even before um, the World Cup. He, he hasn't played that front three. He, after the game, he took Grealish out when he was looked like he was finally finding his feet. And as we've seen in the last few Premier League games, he's probably been City's best forward. It feels like City, they were onto something, a really good kind of front three that worked and got the best out of Haaland. And we haven't seen it again since. And to me, that that is the before and after. And I think that is, has played a bit of a key part in why City aren't quite as firing as they were at the start of the season. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I would agree. I'll give you one word for it, and control, which is what Guardiola loves, and, and that doesn't give it to him. I remember writing after that Wolves game that City had, it felt like they had the perfect balance that day. You had Foden on the right, you had De Bruyne and Bernardo as the number eights, and then Grealish and Foden on the wings, and you'd have Bernardo go around the outside of Grealish when he came in, De Bruyne would go around the outside of Foden, and Foden would come in field. They could cut Wolves apart down the wings. They were getting crosses into Haaland, low balls into Haaland. And it just felt that day like the balance was spot on. But we know that, you know, we know how much Guardiola loves control. And it seems he's become more and more obsessed with it the longer he stayed at City. This idea of controlling every game. And it comes back to me, this, this, this is why he likes the Everton performance. Whereas I think a lot of City fans don't. He likes the Everton performance because Everton had one shot. And okay, they scored from it. They got lucky. But he likes that idea that they controlled the game so much. Everton had one shot. They had no counter-attacks, really. City controlled the game. But they didn't win it. And they didn't score enough goals. They, they were unfortunate to concede a worldie from Everton's only shot. But that can happen. But that is the that is the ideal performance, in a way, for, for Guardiola. And that's why he keeps saying the Everton performance was magnificent and, and all these other objectives. And... It, part of it, and I'm going to come on to Haaland. Maybe it's a good time to do it, but it, you know, it, it, it's so weird that we look at. We, we said for two years, imagine putting a striker in that team, and then you put a striker in that team who's got 21 goals in 17 games, and they're they're worse at the moment. They're five points worse off than last season. They've only scored two more goals than this stage of last season in the league, despite Haaland scoring 21 in 17. Um, and the football they're playing is not as good as it has been for the last two seasons. Uh, you know, I don't think that can even be a debate. They're not They're not as good to watch as they have been the last two seasons. And I think that you've, you've basically thrown this agent of chaos in at, at number nine. And it's kind of, you know, Guardiola play, could play Foden as a number nine, false nine last year, because he, he, he lacks a little bit of control. He's a bit direct, but he can come into midfield and play the extra passes and give them time. But now you've got Foden and now you've got Haaland up there. And it's you know it was noticeable in the first half on I think it was the first half, um, but at one point on on Saturday, Guardiola gave Haaland both barrels again over 
just sort of not holding the ball up and, and not doing enough up there. Um, he did it at Chelsea when City were one 0 up. When when Haaland tried to dribble and lost the ball, he just completely lost his mind with him. And you, you've basically introduced this figure who's the antithesis of control, and it almost feels like he can't bring himself to play another player that doesn't have control. And that's I think why we're seeing less of Foden. It's certainly why we're not seeing Foden and Grealish. And Guardiola has always had a habit of starting off seasons where City are winning five nil, six nil, four nil. As seasons go on they always bring it down a level and the control always grows in a season. And in the second half of the season, they start winning games 1-0 and 2-0 and often just doing enough and just, there'll still be great wins in there, but you don't see four, five and sixes in the second half of a season as often as you do in the first, I don't think. It certainly doesn't feel that way. It feels like those results are always sort of September, October, August time. And then come winter, it's it's the 1-0s, the 2-0s, the keep clean sheets just suck the life out of games and, and control games. And it, it feels like they're trying to go to that method now, but it's just not really working because they haven't, you know, they, they, they've still not got the system right with with Haaland. And, uh, yeah, Guardiola talked about Haaland in his Monday um, embargo section of his press conference and kind of said the onus was on his teammates to get him involved more. You know, I wrote it up and looked at the touches from Saturday and, and Haaland touched the ball 20 times in 90 minutes, five of them in the box. The next lowest number for City of plays completed 90 minutes was 61 and you'd always expect a striker maybe to touch the ball less but 41 less touches than the next nearest City player felt um, surprising especially when Haaland touched it so often because he kind of played a different role and he dropped into midfield a lot to because City's midfield was being man-marked he dropped into midfield a lot to try and just play little short balls and free men up so he probably had seven or eight touches that way, really, dropping dropping deeper. At times, he was alongside Rodri in the first half, just trying to give the defenders an option out. So it does, you know, it does feel like like that. That's why going back to the Grealish Foden thing. That's why I think we've not seen that front three because there's too much of a loss of control there, and Guardiola basically can't can't cope with that idea of of not having control. And at the moment, it's a balance that probably hasn't yet been found. Well, well that's kind of my point. Like. You're right, you bang on. He's trying to do this control, um, as you were saying, how he used to do it last season, but he's basically doing it with a lesser pl- less with 10 players now instead of he had this, the midfielder in the striker role, either Bernardo, De Bruyne, Grealish on occasion, or Foden, as you mentioned, maybe even Sterling at points as well, and obviously Jesus, although he used to kind of mostly out wide last year, wasn't it? He's basically trying to do the same thing with a, a player less, so I don't, I can't kind of compute, and who am I to question, of course? I'm no kind of tactical genius or anything like that, of course not, but why wouldn't you just kind of stick with what was going so well beforehand? You know, And maybe it's a case of need to conserve energy. You can't go hell for leather and batter teams all the time or you'll kind of lose stamina and whatnot. There's a lot of games and so, and so on. But since this kind of, I think as I kind of laid out earlier, since this kind of quite vivid before and after that halfway point, um, City might have more controls. I don't have the possession stats to hand, of course, but they might have more possession or whatever and more control, but they've not got as many points. They're not playing as well. And they and I think that's had an adverse effect on the confidence throughout the team. Um, everyone, no one looks at it at all, apart from kind of Grealish, as we'll get to, and Mares was um, beforehand. But uh, everyone looks kind of downbeaten a little bit. The, the mentality, which I thought they was actually building quite well, um, 
as Guardiola mentioned, I want to say after the Dortmund game, the 2-1 at the Etihad, he said, oh, we've, we're doing so many comebacks now. He, he talked about the Villa game last season that won the title. Um, and I think there was a few more games. Newcastle, didn't they go 3-1 three, three down to them this season? Um, those games two, three years ago, City would lose. They wouldn't have the, the strength to come back. But this year, they look like, and the last season as well, they look like they were having that mentality. And maybe it's a question of when they feel like there's been an injustice against them, um, similar to the Tottenham Champions League exit a few years back, even though that wasn't an injustice, it just felt like one. Um, they, they maybe can't, they just lose their heads and can't kind of keep composed and recover from such a kind of agonising blow. But to get that to it, the, the control debate, it just reminds me so much of Spain circa 2014, I want to say, 2016 maybe, whichever there was the, the last tournament after they'd won all their silverware, when they'd have Cesc Fabregas up front, 4 three, three, no striker, have all the possession, but just be absolutely turgid and do absolutely no with it and go out early. And I think, well, I can't compute, Joe, we've seen City play amazingly this season we've seen them beat the team that beat them on Saturday they ripped them to pieces uh, destroyed them it was one of the most humbling Manchester Derby since the last um, time they scored six past them all those years ago and I don't quite see how that's been lost myself or why or why it's been allowed to be lost I do think that I mean two points one is that Guardiola has said He's had a feeling from the start of the season that a slump might be coming, whether it's the mentality of defending a title for the third time in a row. He's, he's pointed to it the last time they were unable to, to win three on the bounce and he's sort of warned that it could be coming. Um, maybe this form has been sort of un, going under the radar for a while, but they've been getting away with it because they've been getting goals, for example, like they did at Chelsea. The, the late winner against Fulham turned the story from a... A, real, a bad afternoon into a really positive one um, so maybe there are a few examples of, of that where they've been sort of getting away with the games rather than completely dominating them um, but also when you sort of ask opposition managers and, and players how to stop Haaland and how to defend against City they basically say we can't we can't stop Haaland in the box if the ball comes to him in the box he's got such a sort of in, innate ability to move quicker than the defenders he's going to get to the ball so the answer always seems to be stop the ball getting into the box and it seems like that more and more teams have, have successfully been able to do that I'd be interested to see sort of how many crosses City have been getting in and whether they're sort of drying up of goals like you said that the sort of before and after that Liverpool game is I mean it's it's in black and white isn't it the the lack of goals in recent games whether it's rotation through all the competitions and there have been some Champions League and Cup games where Guardiola can use some fringe players who might not be as creative or, or as driven even as, as the sort of regular senior players um, but no I'd, I think you look at what United did the other day they man-marked Kevin De Bruyne for, for large parts they had um, they had was it Fred on, on Haaland for a bit they, they did a lot of man-marking and, and very high pressing Southampton did the same Nathan Jones talked about that after the game he said we wanted to get on Phillips and stop the, stop the move before it even begins and if that's how you stop City which is sort of disrupt them from the very start of the moves Haaland's not going to get more than 20 touches because the ball isn't going to get anywhere near him and we saw him try and come deep a few times and make the run but no one made the pass for the subsequent run when he's, he's turned and, and put the burners on so yeah maybe maybe City have sort of 
had those results at the start of the season because Haaland was such a new a new threat and then slowly some teams have started to figure out well if you can't stop Haaland then you can stop the rest the, the rest of City's play and yeah City have to have to deal with that and if that's married up with what Guardiola says is a bit of a, a drop in mentality Gundogan sa- said the other night that something's missing some some hunger and desire is missing um, it seems like it's sort of a, a potion of things that might have contributed to this this little blip and yeah City needs to find a way to, to get out of that the defenders are saying we need to defend better and, and take the pressure off the attackers but I'm, I'm sure Guardiola will also be thinking how do we get that ball again from the midfield to out wide and then to Haaland and because at the moment something's not not happening I've just felt over the last couple of days that the players are mm. stopping when they get the ball they're stopping because they don't know where the where the teammates are and you never see that with City so mm. some something's not right at the moment but I would also back a team as successful as City and who've worked together for so long to, to quickly find a solution mm. and it shouldn't go and mention of course the World Cup I think it's easy to forget already how unique that's been how kind of off-putting um, and of course the fatigue on players Stones and Diaz currently you know Stones one of probably City's best passer at the back he'd be starting if he was fit you'd imagine and I think he was playing really well before he got injured and um, it's unfortunate that he's out Diaz as well of course but Ty you know the the, the Haaland debate it does beg the question was it a mistake to sign him and or you know, as, as bizarre as it may sound, given he scored however many goals it is already, and he's clearly a re- remarkable striker. Was it a, you know a case of eyes too big for the belly? Did City need him? Like we all thought he did. I certainly said we did. But I do, I do want to recall saying on this pod, and if I didn't say it on the pod, I'm certainly claiming I did because none of you are going to go back and check. Um, it reminded me quite a lot of um, the Zlatan signing by, uh, Pep Guardiola made at Barcelona. Now, obviously, the temperaments of Haaland and Zlatan couldn't be further apart and I'm not saying they're going to have a falling out on that scale or anything like that but it was as you absolutely bang only said bang only definitely isn't a word but we're going to coin it as well um, it was, Zlatan was the agent of chaos into that absolutely pristine team and I think I want to say he wanted that he, he wanted that bit of um, spark to because his, his teams are so regimented so um, cogs doing exactly what they need to do at times when things go wrong they tend to not have that little bit of like spark and innovation to get them out of it out of nowhere unless it's John Stones of any company banging it in from 30 yards but that sort of wild card magic they've not had and that's why you got Zlatan of course it exploded and I just see similarities with that where the the cohesion and the the tranquility and the machine gets kind of disrupted by a, a brand new update that's meant to make things more efficient and even more deadly but it kind of dis- it puts everything quite out of place a little bit and it's going to take time to get everything running of course it never quite did with Zlatan at Barcelona yeah I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't be saying it was a mistake at the moment um, he's still scoring well 1.3 1.4 goals a game something like that <laughs> a hell of a mistake to make he'll be down to zero soon and if we don't get scoring again <laughs> he'll be back to less than one a game soon <laughs> but you know there, there are there are issues around it, but like like Joe says, there's also the fact that Premier League defenders and, and Premier League managers were always going to find a way to get better against him. That's that's the nature of of the league. It's in terms of depth of teams and depth of, of quality of managers and coaches and players. It's the best in the world, and they weren't going to be steamrolled by Haaland for 38 games a season. They were going to watch videos and analysis and work out ways to to stop him. So that was always going to be. Um, that was always going to come in as a factor, and 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 it does, 
it does feel like it's an issue now. And obviously one of the Guardiola thinks it's the case as well when he's talking about teammates needing to find him. There, there is also the relevance of, of what, what Joe said about Guardiola saying this has been coming all season and that, that the kind of things Gundogan has touched on about lack of desire and hunger. And it, it is hard to keep going and keep going. And you wonder maybe if there's also a, a bit of a subconscious thing at City are being affected by Liverpool's slump and a disastrous season Liverpool have had. City have become so accustomed to needing to be on their best every week because Liverpool are relentless and constantly on them and constantly snapping at their heels. And City know they can't ease off for a minute. And when you've spent five years judging yourself against Liverpool and you see them doing what they're doing this year, maybe subconsciously you go, God, they've, they've gone away, that's nice. But then suddenly there's a, there's a new threat in Arsenal and you're not, you know, you're not quite attuned to looking at looking at them. And we've all thought up until the World Cup, Arsenal would fall away. And now you look at them, and they're beginning to feel they're almost beginning to feel a bit like Liverpool in 2019-20. That the momentum is is unstoppable. And if you know if they beat United at the weekend, it, it might well be unstoppable for them, even though they've still got City to play twice. So, so you know there are bigger issues at play. But the Haaland thing is is certainly interesting and one to keep an eye on. I mean, you'd, you'd certainly back Guardiola to eventually find a solution. But there are, like I say, there are examples at Barcelona of where he almost kept wanting to play a striker before eventually accepting Messi was the best striker he was going to get and and building the team around him rather than looking for that that natural number nine. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Well, we'll talk about how um, maybe Haaland can get turned around momentarily, but uh, you know, try and look a bit more positive on, positively on things. But first, let's just have a bit more uh, doom and gloom before that. Um, the win for United does uh, City is still second, but um, United both Uniteds are hot on their tails. Uh, Newcastle after their win at Fulham, um, a point behind, as are United down fourth. But what is quite interesting now, uh, and I say Arsenal defeated Tottenham very handily on the weekend and they're uh, eight points is it eight points ahead um, but what is a kind of quirk of the calendar an unexpected one uh, United's rearranged game with Crystal Palace they were meant to have uh, a rare midweek off this week but the game with Crystal Palace that was meant to be played uh, in September but was uh, rearranged due to the passing of Queen Elizabeth has been put on Wednesday before City play Tottenham so if United win at Sellers Park they will go uh, two points or one point is it uh, two points ahead of City Joe and this is going to be an, uh, an interesting position for City we'll touch on Spurs soon but if United win they'll go down to third um, yeah they'll go down to third and be behind United for the first time in what must be years at this point and they'll go to Tottenham who are obviously an absolute free fall as we'll get on to but we've talked about many times Tottenham are City's bogey team they never like playing them they beat them even though when all logic says um, they shouldn't and there'll be real pressure going into that game on Thursday um, if United do get the win on Thursday so the title race it, it, it's you know, we're touching it for quite a while our Arsenal really contenders and, <laughs> it's, and it's, hard to, it's hard to deny that now and if City are still contenders, then both United will have to be considered so as well, at least for the time being. Yeah, I think this week is going to be huge in in the title race, especially after what's happened this weekend. Just gone, Arsenal have really taken a couple of steps forward while others have taken a step back. So, if they can still, even if they remain eight points ahead after playing United, they'll be uh, they'll be very happy for that. City could could be in double figures by by the end of the week Tottenham are 
didn't look good against Arsenal, but they did come back into the game. Could have scored a, maybe one or two goals if 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 say they'd got one back, and who knows what would happen. They've got a good record against City. Then yeah, I think that will be a really big game for for both teams. And um, City can't do anything about United at, at Palace. They'll expect. United to beat Palace, even though Palace have been doing okay this season. Um, but yeah, no, I, th- I think City will. At the moment, they've, they've, the results have meant that every game is a must-win game until they can get to within touching distance of Arsenal. And yes, they've got Arsenal to play twice, but on form, they are not going to be easy games at all. Last year, not easy games by any stretch, and Arsenal weren't in contention at, at that point. Um, but no, it, it's it's got to the point where City will want United to slow down a little bit, but they probably wouldn't complain if United did them a favour against Arsenal. So you can get bogged down in thinking about that, but City will just have to think of themselves and try and win the next game and see what happens. And yeah, I, I do think it's got to the stage now where if they want to win the title, they've got to beat Arsenal twice. And there was a stage maybe a couple of weeks ago where they could have got, I don't know, four points or or there wasn't as much importance on those games but now it's it really is potentially going to go down to to those two games and at the moment as Ty said Arsenal are clearly the best team in the league and the best form team and looking like no one's going to stop them so City have to drastically improve to to keep up with them mm-hmm. but on on the other end of that stick Ty City could quite as easily win the matches this week um, and things are looking an awful lot rosy if they do kind of pit the finger out yeah, I mean, there's, there's a scenario where on by the end of Sunday night, City are two points behind Arsenal and United are three points behind Arsenal and we've got a monstrous title race on our hands that City are clearly favourites for. So, it's you know, it, it is still only... This this week will be the halfway stage for City and, and United. I think they've both played 19 games by the end of Thursday. So, there is a long way to go. The Tottenham game is interesting because, like we say, they, they are City's bogey team. Tottenham often find a way against City. Conte often find a, finds a way against City. But they look so poor at the moment, especially in the first half of games, that the template to beat them is, is pretty simple, really. Just get out and, and take them apart in the first half when they look a mess and don't seem to know what they're doing. So, you know, it does... It, it, it's a bit early to say defining week in the title race, but there's so many scenarios, really, with, with those big games. I mean... If City don't beat Tottenham, it wouldn't be you know it wouldn't be a huge shock, would it? If City only took a point, say, and then if Arsenal do beat United, Arsenal are ten points clear, and suddenly you're looking at a very different race. But conversely, there's that there's that swing where United win at Arsenal and City are back to two points behind, and, and everything's pretty rosy again. So it is, it's not a defining week, but it's certainly a big week. Absolutely, absolutely. You both kind of talked about it there. It's not you know it's not panic stations just yet, even though things might be getting a little hairy, but. Joe, how do City go about turning things around? I stand by, I think, Grealish, you know, not really had a chance to talk about the, the little positives from the match, but his introduction I thought was really good. He scored um, a few minutes after coming on, a good header as well, getting in the right position. Um, out Haaland in Haaland in his positioning to kind of get that header. And um, I say the rare moment De Bruyne got out of space, he delivers an absolutely killer pass. And, and addition to that, I thought Grealish on the ball was really um, exciting for that 20 minute half an hour spell where City were in control the way you got on the ball drove at United and just picked up fouls that United City weren't getting before and really helped you know until it all went wrong it was really like it was going to get City over the line um, I think he needs to start coming back into the start because obviously he changed the game with his introduction alongside Mares in fact in the um, the 1-0 win over Chelsea a couple a couple of weeks back um, in the last Premier League game of course 
he's coming back I'd still say as I said I'd, I'd have Foden back on the right again you know screw control it's not doing anyone any good at the minute is it it's all about um, chaotic good um, but is there anything else I was actually quite surprised Lewis didn't start um, I thought his performances of late um, have been really good speaking of control I think the way he's been able to slot in come into the middle and add that maybe that is the answer he can be that extra midfielder that Cancelo has just not been able to do at the minute. He's not in, uh, not in the best run of form at all. Maybe, maybe that I know that where's that leave Walker, of course. But at the end of the day, if the young lad's playing better, you bring him in. No, I, I sort of advocated for Lewis before the game, but I also could really see why he did start the players he did because they're more experienced. Walker has the pace to deal with United's pace, and in fairness to Cancelo, he's not played that well in recent games. But I thought he did. Okay, he didn't do too much wrong. Um, probably his best performance in in recent weeks. But I also would say that I think City have looked more balanced and more fluid when they've got Rico Lewis on that right hand side, drifting into midfield. Now whether he comes in against Tottenham, they have some decent attacking midfield uh, sort of wingers and attacking midfielders themselves, don't they? So um, maybe Guardiola has decided at the moment. Okay, let's just take Lewis out of the limelight for a little bit people have started talking about him he's played some big games let's just play the experienced players for now and, and bring him back in at a later date the fixtures probably don't lend themselves to playing a, an 18 year old who doesn't have the most experience especially when City aren't playing the best but I keep coming back to it I think they do play better since the World Cup when, when Lewis is playing so that's a decision he's got to make I know you're calling for Foden, but I do think Riyad Mahrez is, is City's best right winger at the moment. He's playing uh, sort of even before the World Cup, he was starting to come back. But since that break, he's put his early season worries behind him and he's taking players on. He's scoring goals. He's creating chances. I, I think if you if you're wanting to play yourself back into form, you play your players who are playing well. Um, and I think even though it's a formation that City fans aren't, that keen on I think Grealish on one side and Mahrez on the other are probably probably the best options at the moment especially if you can get Grealish having a run at his defender um, and it, was it was it Sessegnon for, for Tottenham against Arsenal you'd fancy Grealish most times against a player like that who might be a little bit shaky so no I'd, I'd, I'd play those those players but you've mentioned both of you mentioned the, the sort of Foden and, and De Bruyne combination on the right that has been where City have looked at the most attacking this season, where you've got one overlapping or underlapping on on the other one. So until Foden really gets back into form, he's been sort of moved around the, the forward positions and back into midfield. I think he needs probably a couple of sub, substitute appearances to get get back into form. But until then, I'd, I'd play Grealish and Myers personally. Uh, Ty, you've talked about how kind of managers have managed to solve the Haaland problem for now at least or at least a few you know Joe as well it's the stopping the supply lines to Haaland and he's not scoring as much as a result how what does Guardiola do to kind of arrest that to get the, the supply lines running again Um, I have no idea yet to be honest but uh, I'm good sure job it's not your job yeah it is a good job it's not my job yeah Being it, you're right he wouldn't score again this season if it was my job Um. I don't know. I mean, he will have a plan, I'm sure, of, of how to do it. Um, you know, it, it doesn't feel like anything's particularly changed from a City point of view, but as we say, teams have worked it out. United, like I say, they they man-marked that midfield, basically. It was often Casemiro and Fred on Bernardo and De Bruyne. Eriksen would surround Rodri. Martial wouldn't press the centre-backs and would just sort of cut off that pass to Rodri. And in the first half especially, there were so many occasions when... 
Ake and Akanji had the ball and there was just no pass on. And often the, the, the ball might be out to Walker or Cancelo, but they were slow in playing it. United were quick at getting across and there was just, there was lots of possession, but no real cutting edge. And that's where you kept seeing Haaland drop next to Rodri, basically, just to, to get the ball. So working those midfielders into freer positions is the issue, is is the problem. How you go about that, I I don't know. Um like Joe, I, I would I would like to see Lewis. I was surprised Lewis didn't play. It felt telling when when Guardiola said after that Chelsea game at, at Stamford Bridge that he's the type of player who just makes others play better. And you could see that in the second half of Stamford Bridge, that the players around him, De Bruyne and Bernardo, picked up their level when he came in. And it, you know, it's early days, but it almost feels like he's better than Walker. Maybe not as a right back, but in as a right back for City and what they're asked to do. He's, he's better than Walker. He's, he's quicker to get into that midfield position than Walker is. You know, it's, it's hard to even know what position he's playing sometimes. He covers the ground so quickly between right back and holding midfield. And he just gets the ball, he gives it, and he progresses City up the field so smoothly and so quickly um, that I think he makes a real difference. So I wonder if we might see see more of him. But beyond that, I, I'm out of ideas and I, I'm going to leave it to, to Pep to sort well, it certainly is job, so it'll be intriguing to see if you can come up with a solution. Because as we say, another big game on Thursday, kind of awkward time. And of course, um, a game, then the weekend's match will be against Wolves. Thankfully, two home games, though, Joe. And as I say, we've touched on it briefly there. You know, Spurs have been absolute kind of free fall and then it. Uh, well, one, two of the last five, but the losses have been quite, in the league at least, but the losses have been quite kind of humiliating for them and they've not looked good in any, at least in the first half of any game um, it seems like Conte's been kind of wanting to keep things goalless or at least secure um, until the break and then go out after second half and kind of you know try and blow teams away a little bit but it's not been working because Spurs are so kind of fragile defensively that they end up two or three down by the break and um, have to you know most of the wins have relied on comebacks I believe Tottenham have got the most points in the Premier League this season from losing positions at 14 I believe Sky Sports is ticker tally it was correct so it if, if maybe Conte is forced to change things now after such a kind of humiliating defeat against Arsenal on on Sunday, it wasn't that the scoreline was particularly bad, but they were just so listless. So the the, the manner of the way they conceded the goals and the complete lack of fight, and it was just an, it, it was quite like the United Manchester derby last season when City beat United two nil, and it was only two nil, but it was such a kind of resounding two nil that it was almost worse for being two nil. It was like oh, you didn't even have the you took sympathy and pity and didn't even go for the third and fourth and fifth when you really could have done. So maybe there has to be a response here. But if if Conte kind of sticks with what he's been doing, then it seems to me City just need to go at them in that first half and just blow them away and exploit that fragile defence. And maybe that's what they need instead of trying to control a game and and sort of play the way and, and I don't know... Just, fulfil a sort of tactical plan Sometimes maybe the, these players just need a little bit of confidence back into them because yes they're world class players but they are human beings on a bad run of form by their own high standards maybe they just need to to go and attack and, and get a few early goals we, we saw in the, the Chelsea game in the cup how, how City got a couple of first time goals quick fire um, in the first half and Chelsea just crumbled and yeah maybe if if Tottenham are on a sort of similarly bad run themselves and, and short of confidence, then then City can do that. Arsenal play quite similar to, to City nowadays and, and they got a lot of space, far too much space in that first half. So City, you would expect, would exploit that. But I think 
if you ask any City fan, as long as they've got Harry Kane and Hyungmin Son in that team, they're gonna they're gonna always worry because they they always raise the game against City. And I, I did see a few tweets, even when Hugo Lloris punched that cross into his own net without any player around him. A lot of City fans were saying, "Well, that's just guaranteed that he's going to have a, a worldie on Thursday now, isn't he?" Because that's how things happen. But yeah, if if you if you're out of form, you probably want to play. You want to play another team out of form, and and that's what City have got on on Thursday. It's a home game, and and that's what. They've just got to take the game to Tottenham and, and try and play the way back. And City are the type of team that can go on a run, and sometimes it just takes one game to spark them back into life. And who knows, it could be could be against Tottenham. Absolutely, but Ty, as we've kind of touched on, the the I don't know if it's luck or if it's just voodoo or mentality or whatever it is. But Tottenham's record against City is kind of baffling, given how rubbish Tottenham have tended to be over the last few years in the last I've got it here one, two, three, four, five, six, where we're going I'd say since 2019 the last seven meetings City have only won twice there's been four defeats and a draw um, that's mostly in the Premier League and League Cup and doesn't even include obviously the Champions League exit and um, all the other kind of dramatics um, this fixture is often conjured up it should be an exciting game for the neutral but for a City fan it must be quite a, quite a worrying one because I think if it wasn't Tottenham the team if it was just this team playing this badly City would be kind of rubbing their hands together and it might they'll be the, the welcome relief they need but the fact that it's Tottenham must be sending a few shivers yeah I'm sure it will be there's, there's that fear factor obviously because they've done it before um, but there's you know there's no reason for it particularly like we say Tottenham on a poor run the, you know, they, they have the weapons to hurt City I think it'd be fair to say when when Kane drops deep into a number 10 role or an even number 8 role at times and Son and Kulisewski are running beyond him, that's the kind of thing that, that terrifies City. And it's the kind of thing that United did did well on Saturday and always do against City. Um, those those transition teams, as, as Guardiola calls them, and Tottenham definitely fit that mould when you get Kane in those positions and you get Son and Kulisewski running. But you know, those players, Kulisewski's just coming back from injury. He, he wasn't particularly good yesterday. Son's been poor all season. Um, Kane looks a little rusty, maybe still from the World Cup. So there's no reason for that fear factor to be there, really. And pre- previous games shouldn't have an impact on, on what's going on in this game. So, yeah, there's, I'm sure the fans will be nervous because as supporters, that that is what we're like when we're playing bogey teams. But you wouldn't think that would be permeating the dressing room and... On, on current form, City should should have too much for him. Score prediction? 3-1. Uh, Joe, prediction? Uh, I'll say 2-1 to City. I'm going to be a little bit more pessimistic and go for a drop. I'll say 1-1. One, one. But ladies and gentlemen, it's certainly be interesting to see how that game plays out and hopefully City can break their duck. When was the last time City lost three on a spin? Has that happened ever under Guardiola? It'd be good if we knew that before this podcast. I, I yeah, meant to look it up. I meant to look it up. An hour ago. <laughs> it's been a hectic all afternoon. Well, if you want to find that out, um, dear listeners, you go and give that a Google and let us know and hopefully it won't happen uh, this week. But of course, we'll be back later on this week on Friday, hopefully, to talk about that match and Sunday's uh, home tri- uh, home match against Wolverhampton Wanderers. But if you want to keep up to date with everything City, um, before we're back, of course, go over to manchestereveningnews.co.uk forward slash 
slash Manchester City for all the latest news and expert analysis and opinions. Thanks again. Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to watch us in living colour, you know, Joe mentioned he saw my face of utter disbelief earlier. If you want to see that look of utter disbelief and exasperation over that controversial equaliser, well, you can go over to YouTube and watch this podcast um, in live motion. Uh, it's uh, Manchester City-MEN. So please go over there, give us a nice like and subscribe. You can get us on Twitter at Man City MEN. Our Facebook page is uh, Manchester Evening News-Manchester City. And of course, you can give this little podcast a little nice rating as well. It'd be very much appreciated. But until we see you again later on this week, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening and it's goodbye for now. Terra. Thank you.